So welcome to New Philly Hongdae. As of last week, we are now one campus, one campus. We used to have two services, one at 11 a.m. and then one at 2.30, which is why the people who used to go to the 11 a.m. keep saying good morning to you guys. It's because we're not used to it. Um, but very, very excited to have everybody in the same room all at the same time. And we are really very much in a new season of our church. So if you're new to our community, um, you come right on time to be like swept into this new thing that God is doing right now. Um, to catch you up just a little bit on maybe what you've missed over the last year or two, we were going through some major transitions as a church. Uh, major, major transitions regarding like people stepping down, people stepping up, um, locations, you know, times, services, all these things are kind of getting shuffled around. Um, so it is in the midst of this that you are stepping in right now. Now, all of this didn't come out of the blue. It wasn't like somebody pulled the plug all of a sudden one day and all these things are happening. I just happened to believe that the Lord was speaking to us already about this, like years back. If we had been paying attention, but we kind of weren't. We we're like, yeah, 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 this is a word for somebody else. And we didn't really, really pay attention to different things that God was speaking to us about. Um, and so today's message has a little bit to do with that. It's kind of like a follow-up on a word that we received about two years ago. So if you guys were here two years ago, which is probably not very many of you guys, uh, right around this time of year, we had a guest speaker fly in for one of our leadership retreats. And he taught on the beauty of Christ, on, you know, his second return. He preached on so many different things. And then on Sunday, for Sunday service, he stood on this very same stage and he talked about the divine seal, the, the fiery seal of divine love, what God is longing to seal his church with that will, he uh, will help her get through seasons that nothing else will carry her through. And so we're going to do a follow-up on that. And it's actually going to be for the next three sermons that we're going to be talking about this. So today's just the first installment of this. And it's a message that has actually been burning on my heart for the last two years. And I just feel like it right now is the right season to begin to talk about this. So if you have your Bibles with you, can we open up to the book of Revelation? It's very easy to find. It's like right at the very, very back, right before the maps in your Bible. Or the Chansonga, if you have, you know, the, the combo Bible. All right, book of Revelation, chapter 2. And for those of you who don't have, a, you know, don't have a Bible app or anything like that, I'll have slides up for you. I will have, I should have slides up for you. Do I have slides? Yeah. Okay, I do. We'll just give it a second. Or two. Yeah, there we go. All right, so Revelation chapter 2, starting with verse 1. It reads, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's the really, really good news part right there. And then it takes a bit of a turn. And this is what Jesus 
says to this church in Ephesus, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Verses five and six. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You have all, you have the practices. You have, I'm missing a word there because you don't have the practice of neglations. You have, you hate, not have, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We thank you, God, that every word that you've spoken and every word that you've written, you meant And I pray, Father, that as much as a word in itself holds power to transform our hearts and our minds, I ask that our hearts would be good soil for that seed. We trust, Father, that your word is powerful and effective, but if our hearts are hardened, if our hearts are distracted, if we are slow to believe, if we allow the enemy to steal the seed of your word, there will be no fruit. And so we ask, Father, that even right now, that you begin to sift through our hearts, that you make our hearts good soil for the good seed. We pray, God, that it would bear much fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold in our lives, that we would not shut off the power of your word working through your spirit in us. We thank you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the series that we're going to be going through for the next three weeks is going to be restoring first love. And today's the first part. Now, just to give you a little bit of a background, I feel a certain kind of urgency in my spirit regarding this particular word. I feel like we've gone through a lot of different things, but there's still more things that are are up ahead for us, things that we know nothing about. And I feel like this is a crucial time where God is trying to do something that will set our trajectory for the next season. It's like if you were to set a course and a destination for a train, the first thing that you need to do is set the train tracks on the ground. And I feel like that's what God is doing right now. We are defining our destination. We're defining the way that we get there, where we're going to be, who knows, in two months, five months, a year, five years. I feel like right now as a church, we're in a moment of decision and how we respond, how we position our hearts in this season is going to affect everything. It's going to determine where we are in the next season. And so I feel like before running full steam ahead, a hundred miles an hour, I feel like what God is doing right now is he's setting our trajectory. He's setting our course before we kind of jump in and just run full speed. I feel like God is leading us to a place where he sets some foundational things in our hearts first, sets some priorities straight, and that is going to give us the resolve, not just as a house, but as an entire community, sorry, not just as a staff or just as pastors or just as leaders, but as an entire community and as a house it is going to set us in a trajectory to not bend or compromise areas in our faith. 
So restoring first love. This is a letter that is coming from the words of Jesus Christ himself for this one church that was found in the city of Ephesus. If you guys read it from your Bible, it should be written in red. If it's written in red, it means it comes from the word uh, from the mouth of God, right? From the mouth of God. And so this is the letter that he is writing to this one church in a certain city. Whatever Jesus diagnoses about your particular church is true. And it's very needed. There's no word that goes wasted. If Jesus was to, if we were to open up a Bible and read like letter to the church of New Philly in Seoul, South Korea, would you pay attention or would you not? You would. Like everything that he has to say about your church is right. His judgments are perfect. His discernment is perfect. His understanding, no one can fathom. So this is the guy who knows everything, who can empower you to do anything, who sees everything, even the things that you don't even see just yet. And he's writing to this one church in Ephesus. Now, the city of Ephesus, these are now the ruins of the city of Ephesus. It's actually, they're still there. It's in the the country of Turkey right now. And these are just the ruins. And even if you were to just see the ruins, you kind of get a glimpse of how amazing the city was. Those little dots at the bottom are people. So that's to give you a little bit of, um, what do you call it? Scale. Uh, So the city of Ephesus was like the city of all cities back in its day. It was a city known for its riches, its commerce, cutting-edge technology, technology. architecture, high traffic, massive buildings that kind of boasted of the power of this one city, the affluence and the beauty of this one city. And these are some other ruins that still remain there today. This is like a Colosseum. And you see those little tiny dots at the bottom? Those are people. That's also to give you scale. And it's amazing how thousands of years later, this is still there. That's how incredible of a city it was. Now, back in its day, this is an artistic representation. It was like the metropolis. It was the happening place. Like if you wanted to get anywhere in your career, this is where you would go. This is a city that was built in the 10th century BC. It went through different eras and different occupations and all these different things. But its height was during the Hellenistic period, so with the Greek influence and then also with the Roman influence. And what was particular about this one city was that it housed the temple to the goddess Artemis. Or in in Roman language, it would be Diana. And this was the goddess of hunting. This is a goddess of fertility and childbirth. And the pagan industry, the pagan idol industry in the city was booming. Just like Hollywood is known for entertainment, just like Vegas is known for casinos, this city was known for its pagan idol industry. That was their main export. That was their main commerce. Everything revolved around the pagan idol industry. And the most amazing thing that happened that is recorded in the book of Acts chapter 19 that happened in the city was that Paul who was going through here and was evangelizing for about two years. He was talking in different synagogues. He was talking to different unbelievers. This is one instance where everybody, no matter what kind of background they're from, they realize that the God Yahweh was a real God. And this is how the story goes. You know, Paul is just doing his thing. And then like people who are watching a minister... They don't really believe in Jesus. They don't really believe in Yahweh. And they're like, that's really cool. I feel like I could do that as well. And so what they do is that they try to do their own side little side gig, like side ministry. They don't know this God that Paul is talking about. And they say, in the name of Jesus, the God that Paul believes in, 
be healed. Or they're trying to perform these miracles, and they actually happen at first. But what happens is this one demonized man, this man that has demons, um, when these people say that to them, um, the demons, this is kind of creepy, but the demons actually speak up. And they say, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of, but who the heck are you? And then the demons beat up these guys. And so the entire city heard about this. And there's no denying, there's no agenda, no like evangelistic kind of push for this. It happened to people that were trying to just, you know, minister in the name of Jesus that they had no idea about. Um, And everybody caught wind of this. And because of this, as a result of this, thousands came to faith. And at the same time, this monumental moment had the power to shake and bankrupt the entire pagan idol industry of the city. So this disrupted the economic flow of an entire city, an entire metropolis. So imagine doing something that would bankrupt, like in Korea, what would be the equivalent? Like the entire K-pop industry. Like one incident, like bankrupting an entire industry. That's what happened in this instance. And because of this... This became one of the major churches in the ancient times because this was a church where they had the affluence, the riches, they had the resources, they had like you know, the celebrity preachers of their time, right? That Paul in their midst, they had, you know, the disciples of Christ there. And in the middle of that, um, all this crazy signs and wonders happened. And so this was the city of Ephesus. This was, this was the church in the city of Ephesus. This was Really, if there was ever a megachurch, this was the megachurch, the megachurch of the ancient time. And it is to this particular church that Jesus is saying, look, you've done a lot of really good things. You, you had the right doctrine. You have persevered in the midst of trials. You've dealt with all these different attacks from outside and also from within the church. You're doing great, but this one thing I have against you, and that is that somewhere along the way, you've lost your first love. Now, this is a very serious indictment. This is a very serious indictment in Jesus's eyes. I wonder what that exhortation must have sounded like to people who are in the height of their ministry. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, this is where everybody comes. This is where if you have an unbelieving friend, they bring them to this church. This is where we have mass baptisms every Sunday. This is where we have ministry after ministry. We're rolling out. We are just going full steam ahead. We have all these different buildings and structures and leaders and programs. And how bad can it be that we've kind of lost our first love, right? Like, everything else seems to be going really well. Like, yeah, maybe we're not doing great on that, but we're doing pretty great in everything else. And if there's anything that the ruins of today proves, the fact that there is no church in Ephesus today, that proves it's most likely they didn't heed to this warning. They thought, yeah, that's a minor detail. Like, our love for Jesus, eh, it could come and go. Maybe I'm just going through, like, a really bad season right now, and 
perhaps it'll pick up later, but it's not as important as our evangelism program, as our outreach program, as our international ministries, as our CDs, if they had CDs, our CDs that we're releasing and all these crusades that we're holding. It can't be as important as that. It's important, but not really that important. And this is far from what God believes about love. If we were to look through the rest of the Bible in Matthew 22, there was a point where uh, there was a story where Jesus was cornered by um, teachers of the law. These were experts. These were people who had memorized hundreds, if not thousands of verses, and they could recite them in multiple languages. And they had devoted their entire lives to memorize something like this. Imagine if I was to like be an expert in this, where I could quote this entire thing to you by memory, right? I would, I would think I would kind of know my stuff. And so people who were, this was their job. They cornered Jesus and they told him, so what is the sum of all this? What is the most important thing about this book? If you were to summarize it in just a sentence or two, what would it be? And in Matthew 22, this is what Jesus says. Oh, sorry. So they ask him, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And this is what Jesus says. Love the Lord, your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. That is the essence of the word. The entire word hinges on loving, loving God and loving people. It's not respecting God and respecting people. It's not serving God and serving people. All those, all those things, they are part of that, but it's so central to Jesus that he uses the word love. It has to be love. The entire word of God hinges on these two things, loving God and loving your neighbor. Now, Jesus wasn't the only one who thought that this was important. What? Sorry. Um, Paul also seemed to think very highly of love as well. Somebody who was constantly being cornered and asked for loopholes, for exceptions. What happens of this? What do you think about this? Let's engage in apologetics. And someone who was constantly being asked to show favoritism. They're like, like my neighbor and I were trying to figure out who's better. And like, I have the gift of this and they have the gift of this. What do you think? And this is something that Paul says in the book of first Corinthians chapter 13. And now I'll show you the most excellent way. This is the best person. The best person is a person that knows how to love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Imagine you could have one person who could speak every language known to man, not just of man, but also of angels. And even this kind of level of gifting will not offset the fact that you don't understand love. No amount of talent, of anointing, of gifting is going to cover up the fact that you don't understand love. He goes on to say, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move the mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Can you imagine if I were to say mountain move, like, like Namsan move and Namsan would be like, okay, and move. 
You think I would have influence? Like you think I would have gifting? Yes. But even if I were able to do that, and if I had not love, that means nothing. That means nothing. Nothing in the eyes of God. If I, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. No amount even of selflessness without love is going to cover up for that fact. Even God, the father seems to think that love is pretty important and it is something of utmost important. I could make the argument. I could make the argument that it is the most important thing. You can get a lot of things wrong in life and we will get a lot of things wrong in life. But if we get one thing right, it has to be this understanding of love. Okay. So we understand, okay, we need to, okay, set our priorities straight and we need to learn to love. All right. All right. What now? What now? What do you do? Do you make yourself love? Like you force yourself, like, I'm going to try to love. It doesn't work that way. I don't know if you guys have ever had those experiences where like you feel like God is speaking to you about something and you're like, all right, Lord. All right, Lord. From here on out, I am going to do X, Y, Z until I die or you return. Like I am so set on this. How long did that last? (laughs) Right? For good people, like two months, maybe. For not so good people like me, like like half a day. right? How far did your good intentions and your self-discipline and your, okay, I'm going to do this and my sense of responsibility, how far did that take you? Was it only until the next hiccup, until the next thing that distracted you or the next thing that discouraged you came along? It is so short-lived. And this is how I know that we as humans are so sinful because like no matter how hard we try, no matter how moral we think we are, our own efforts are not going to get us anywhere. And all of us have gone through that experience. All of us has gone like, no, no, this time, Lord, I mean it like for real. Like I really mean, I cross my heart, hope to die. Like I'm so sure pinky swear that I'm never going to do this again, or I'm always going to do this until you come back. And it would fizzle out. Only it would be only a matter of time before it fizzled out. So this is something as we are talking about uh, restoring our first love. This is something really, 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 really important that we need to keep in mind. And that is the only way that we can love is because God loves us first. Like this is so central to our understanding of how we can love. So today's message is not about, all right, guys, let's learn how to love better. It's actually the other way around. If we were to understand just how furiously, how vehemently God loves us, how it all starts with that, how that changes everything about us, everything in us, every desire, every agenda, every um, exploit, everything in us, this is, it's touched by this first, the fact that God loves us first. We cannot be naive enough to believe that our good intentions are going to get us really far. We cannot believe that programs are going to get us really far. We cannot believe that anything man-made and not God-initiated is going to get us really far. So this is like a cornerstone. This is going to be so crucial in our trajectory and our journey ahead for the next season. 
I used to think, and this was just me being super religious. I used to think like, if we focus on the fact that Jesus loves me, that I'm going to become really self-centered and self-focused. And the world is going to become about me and how Jesus loves me. And my life is going to be about me. That's how I thought in the beginning. So I was like, that's only for selfish people. Like for people who are really selfless, they need to think about how I ought to love someone else. But little did I know that I have no love to give until I receive this love that God has given me. I will make the case that understanding God's love for you, not y'all, but you, like as an individual, like you, like, like, like he won't, like you, like Diana, you, you know, like you, not you, but you, the fact that he loves you is going to bring you freedom you never thought you could attain. It's going to allow you to love in selfless ways that you never imagined. It's going to free you from every agenda. It's going to free you from the desire to manipulate and have your own way. People who are the most confident in God's love for them are often the most selfless people. They have nothing to prove. They have no one to persuade. They just live in that confidence that they're fully known and fully loved by God. Not once they clean up, not once they've gotten their act straight, not once, you know, this mess is over and the next season, maybe he'll love me. No, like right now, the fact that Jesus Christ is crazy about you has a power to change you from the inside out. And I feel like for me, no matter how long I was a Christian, I feel like that was a turning point for me. I think it happened probably about, I'd say, eight years ago, nine years ago. And I had been a Christian for years until then. The most life-defining revelation for me was the fact that God loves me. I can't, I can't tell you how simple it is, but how deep it is, how revolutionary it is. If I were to ask you, like, does God love you? And you were to say, yeah, of course. I'm like, no, that's not what I'm asking. Like, I'm not asking, yeah, of course. I'm asking, does he love you, like, right now? Like, you, right now. Not you and people within a 10-meter radius around you. Just you. If you were to say with absolute confidence, he is crazy about me. Like, there's nothing he wouldn't do. Like, there's nothing that he wouldn't spare for me. If you had absolute confidence in God's love for you, that is going to set us in the right trajectory of rediscovering and restoring this first love. Before we jump into the next few verses, though, we need to dismantle a few preconceptions or subconscious thoughts that we have about love. This is the first one. Myth number one. This is a myth that we kind of subconsciously think God isn't affected by emotion. Because it would lessen his superiority. Because we think that somebody important, somebody who's got it all together, somebody who's perfect, would be removed, unperturbed, unaffected, in complete control of everything that's happening at all times. And so we see emotions as a weakness in our minds. Sometimes we don't say it, but we see it kind of like as a, they're really logical and really great, but they're kind of emotional. You know, <laughs> like it's like a con. It's not in the pros, but it's in the cons column, right? But we see all over the Bible that emotions are a crucial characteristic that make God complete, perfect, and real. 
The fact that we were designed in God's image and we have emotions is already a testament to that. God isn't beyond emotion. It's not too low for him. And in vulnerability, he makes his affections known to man. It's not like, all right, I have all these emotions and they're just inside and I'm just going to keep them to myself. No, he's like unabashedly bursting at the seams, telling us just how much he loves us. He's not keeping it to himself. He's not holding it in. He doesn't mind the fact that we know this. He doesn't uh, mind that we would see him as somebody who is perfectly emotional. It doesn't affect his omnipotence. It doesn't affect his perfection, but it's instead it enhances it. This is one of the things that does make him perfect. The fact that he has not just emotions, but very intense, very perfect emotions. Myth number two, God isn't affected by emotion because it would make him volatile and changing. So when we think of somebody who's very intensely emotional, we think of them as like manipulable or like fickle or um, unpredictable. They're kind of like a little bit loose and like loose wiring somewhere up here. And like, we just don't know what's going to happen. We cannot fathom someone really trustworthy, really steadfast, who's also intensely emotional. And the reason why we think this subconsciously is because we see it in the people around us or siblings, or, or, um, <laughs> or our friends, or even in ourselves, even in ourselves, right? We should start with ourselves, right? We see it in ourselves first, right? We see it in the broken and fallen form. And so in our minds, we can't reconcile this thing, like somebody intensely emotional and somebody who's perfect, somebody who's not volatile and somebody who's unchanging. But on the contrary, God's emotion doesn't make him changing and volatile, but instead he is consistently and fervently affected by his love towards his people that his emotions are unchanging for us. No matter what you do, no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do in the future, his affection and his love towards his people is unchanging. His wrath towards sin is unchanging. His sorrow over pain is unchanging. His joy in victory is unchanging. His emotions make him a perfect and unchanging God. And this is the last myth that I want us to confront head on. Understanding God's emotions is impractical and subjective. This is like for like, 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 like chicks who love to, you know, sing about like Jesus being their boyfriend, kind of like, this is like for them. And this is not for real, you know, like really serious kind of theologically trained people. (sighs) I cannot count the number of times where people have told me, like, that's just because you're a girl. I'm like, oh, my gosh. If you ever met Paul, if you ever met Jesus, if you ever met Peter, all these people were not, like, these clinical people who were, like, dissecting things. These were emotional people who would passionately preach about Jesus. These are not people who are removed and distant and kept together in that way. No, these are people who believe with all their heart that Jesus was worth preaching this kind of message. And they went all out. They didn't kind of, you know, like try to whatever package themselves in a certain way. No, these were people who are very, very emotional as well. But understanding God's emotions is actually very practical. In our minds, we think like it's great, like hypothetically, like in theory out there, it would be nice to know these things, but it has no serious repercussions in my daily life. It doesn't really affect the way that I live today. It doesn't really affect the way that I do my work, that I interact with my coworkers, that I treat my family. It doesn't really affect it 
it's like it's good in theory, but it's not doesn't bleed over into the like application side of things. But the word of God devotes an enormous amount of space addressing God's emotion, his, his wrath, his pleasure, his intentions, understanding his emotions as biblically expressed is not only doable, but this is the practical part of it. You'll begin to understand not just the how, like the mechanics behind how you were saved, what you're called to do, steps one through five. It's going to begin to address the why. The why behind the how. The why that drives the how. And that is going to revolutionize the way that you think about God, the way that you see yourself. Your ability to love God is going to be in a completely different place if you understand the why behind the how. Now, let's look at some examples in Scripture regarding uh, love. This is some of the how. For God so loved the world. He didn't pity the world. He didn't do a favor to the world. It says God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. If there was ever a why behind the how, it is love. As a father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Can you imagine the perfect, unbroken love between God the Father and God the Son? That fierce, fiery, fiery, perfect love that has gone on from eternity past. That same love is now directed at you. Not a, well, maybe I'll, I'll think about how I feel about you tomorrow. No, that same unbroken, passionate, perfect love between God the Father and God the Son. Now Jesus turns his gaze from the Father to you and says, that same love I have for the Father I have for you as well. Now remain in my love. First John three, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And in Romans eight, a very well-known passage that we tend to, um, you know, quote over and over again, who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written For your sake, for God's sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who had pity on us, who had mercy on us. All those things, yes, but more than anything is through him who loved us. Us, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in the face of trials, in the face of persecution, in the face of famine, in the face of discomfort, in the face of the certainty of death, the slaughter of your loved ones, the certainty of poverty and loneliness, there is something that will hold you fast to the end, and that is the love of Christ. It's like through the entire Bible, God is roaring, pounding on the hardness of our hearts. He's breaking past our fear of rejection. He's breaking past our fear of disappointment. 
breaking past our fragile sense of self. And he's yelling at us through scripture after scripture. What else can I do to have you believe that I love you? I've given of myself. I've given of my son. I watched him be tortured, nailed to a tree so that someone who has fallen and had no hope would find hope and resurrection. I don't know what else I can do to have you actually believe that it's not an altruistic thing that I'm doing. It's because I love you. I am jealous for you. I'm willing to fight for you. I am willing to sacrifice on your behalf. Once our hearts are touched by that kind of love, there's nothing that can shake us. What does discomfort do to something like that? What does persecution from your family do to something like that? What does the inconvenience of showing up at a different service or showing up in a different location, what does this do to that? When you're so grounded in the love, the fervency, the jealousy that God has for you, what does the death of a loved one do to that? What does life changes and moving to a different country do to that? You're firmly in the grip of Christ. There's nothing, nothing, no job situation, no family situation. There's nothing that can tear you away from the grip of the love of Christ. No death, nor life, nor demons, nothing the past, nothing the present, nothing you've done in the past that you feel like this is certainly going to keep me away from the love of Christ. Nothing you're going to do in the future that you feel like, oh, that's really going to disqualify me from the love of Christ. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. God is saying over and over and over again, I need you to believe that you love me. And that's going to change everything about your life. This is a quote from a book written by Mike Bickle. And it says, most believers are so disconnected from the reality of God's astonishing, frightfully lavish love for us that they totally miss out on 99% of what they could experience in their everyday walk with Christ. They treat God like an employer a business partner, a judge, a traffic cop, anything but a lover. They rarely feel his passion, his love, or pleasure. Perhaps they tell themselves that feeling it is not all that important, as long as they are obeying his commands, reading the Bible, and keeping up the spiritual disciplines. But as a consequence of this dryness, they rarely feel love or pleasure of any kind. We are missing out on something major. If we don't take the time to meditate on the fact that God, God loves us. God loves you as an individual. God loves this church as a community. God loves us. And that is the only way we're going to have a fighting chance at understanding and going back to our first love. This is what understanding God's love for us will result in. First thing. It's going to result in love-fueled worship and service, free from entitlement and hidden agendas. There's something in us that is always craving for affection, for affirmation, for acceptance, for belonging. All these different things that God has designed us to want, but he has also designed us to find in him. The love of God perfect love casts out all fear. It casts out the fear of rejection, casts out the fear of not being accepted. It casts out the fear of being alone. It casts out the fear of fear of man. Like what will they think if I, 
It casts out that fear as well. And you become free to worship God and serve his people without the sense of, I hope I get something back out of this after everything I've given. After everything I've sowed in, I hope I get my due. Like, I hope I get something out of this. That is a sense of entitlement. But understanding God's love for you is going to free you from that. It's going to allow you for the first time to love because God loved me first. I didn't deserve it anyway. So you don't deserve it either. Let me love on you. And that's it. Very simple. Serving the house. It's going to become God served me first. What is putting up a, a chair or what is, you know, welcoming people up in the, in the back? What, what is that when God has given everything to me? It frees you from that sense of like, do I have to do this? Do I have to worship you, God? How many more songs? Do I have to worship you on Sunday, but also other days? Like, how much do you want? You know, it's going to free you from that sense of like, let me just do enough. And it's going to take you into that category of what more can I do? What more will you allow me to do for you and for your people? It's going to result in love-filled worship and service, free from entitlement and hidden agendas. It's going to create in you humility and selflessness, even when you feel unseen and unappreciated. I'd love to say that this is the kind of house that, man, if you serve, if you sign up to serve, we are so going to appreciate you. We're going to like appreciate the socks off of you. We're also fallen people, and this is a broken church, and we don't know how to love perfectly. And in those times, when you do feel unseen and unappreciated, and all of us have gone through that before, all of us have felt invisible. All of us have felt like, do people even care? Do they know what I do behind, you know, behind closed doors when nobody's watching? Do they know at what time I do this and, you know, all the things that I've done in secret? When you feel unseen and unappreciated, God's love for you will bring about genuine humility, and selflessness. You're not going to be looking for that from someone else. You're going to be fully satisfied in God. Third, it's going to birth in you confidence and freedom, even in the midst of uncertainty or opposition. God has your back. He has your best interests in mind. He's not out to punish you. He's not out to leave you dry. He's not out to disappoint you. He actually loves you. He is actually for you. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be fulfilled and satisfied in ways that you don't even understand yet. God is after all those things. That is going to bring about a confidence and a freedom, even when you don't know your next step, even when you don't know what God has ahead for you in this next season. You're going to have this confidence and this freedom. Yes, I'm going to be praying into things. Yes, there's going to be a level of uncertainty, but it's not going to destroy me because God loves me. And that is final. That settles things for me. And this is lastly, it's going to birth in us perseverance and steadfastness, even in the midst of hardships. We're going to go through so many things in life. I wish I could tell you that the Christian life is perfect. It's all unicorns and rainbows. And once you accept Jesus Christ, like your life just takes off and, you know, there's no turning back and blah, blah, blah. That's not how it is. That's not reality. This is a fallen world. We are fallen people and we need the love of Christ. We need his Holy Spirit at work in us. We need his word. We need his people. We need all these things. 
In the midst of disappointments, of hardships, of holdouts, of delays, in the midst of all that, the love of God and the love of God alone will give us the perseverance and the steadfastness that we need to run this race. Once again, our good intentions are not going to cut it. We're going to fizzle out in two weeks if that's what we're banking on. If all our eggs and they're in that basket, we are going down as a church. It's just not going to work. We need to be grounded in the love of God and nothing else. And that will give us love-fueled service and worship, humility, selflessness, confidence, freedom, perseverance, steadfastness, even when things happen. Even when we take detours. Even when there are inconveniences. In the midst of all these things, understanding God's love for us will anchor us in such a place where hardships and trials and inconveniences are not going to destroy us. So now we go back to Church of Ephesus. This is what remains of it. It's like the passage in Revelation 2 was God's attempt to tell them, look, Ephesus, you feel really invincible right now. You feel like nothing could go wrong. You feel like like the, the eyes of the world are on you. You are the church that is trendsetting right now. You are the pioneer. You are the forerunner. Everybody's looking to you to write the manuals and write the books and, uh, you know, speak at the conferences. You feel invincible right now, like nothing could stop you. But there is an infection. There's a virus you are incubating that once it is full blown will eat you from the inside out. It will make this unstoppable movement implode on itself. And that is the fact that you've forgotten your first love. You feel invincible, but trust me, I see ahead. I know what's coming up for you. I see persecutions. I see occupations, decline, simply the erosion of time. I see all those things coming for you. And no amount of fancy buildings, no amount of mass salvations, no amount of really clever strategies are going to help you make it through. You will not make it when things get rough. And your future hinges on this one thing, the burning lampstand of my spirit remaining with you hinges on this one thing. Repent and return to your first love. And you cannot do that unless you first understand my unrelenting, my furious, my unceasing love for you. So return to your first love. I feel like this is the trajectory that God is setting for a church. He's brought us this place of decision. That's what I feel. We're in the valley of decision right now. We have a window of opportunity There's a lot of things that are out of our control, but there's certain things that are in our control. One of those things is the posture of our hearts, the priorities of things. Are we going to go through the inconvenience of rearranging our priorities in the season? Are we going to take our eyes off the things that we've grown very used to and comfortable with in order to humble ourselves before God and return to him? Even as a pastor, you know, I don't, I don't have these grand visions of where our church is going to be in five years or ten years. I don't have these grand visions. But there's one thing that I do know, one thing that I have vision for, and that is that God is so jealous for this church to be holy, 
devoted to him, like crazy, crazy in love with him. He is so jealous for this church. And if there's one vision that I would like to paint for you today, where we could be as a church, where we could be as individuals, a year down the line, five years down the line, 10 years, 20 years down the line, is a picture of people who have not forgotten their first love. People who will do whatever it takes to get back to where we need to be. People who will have no limitations, will have no hidden agendas, will have not, no sense of like, man, but I want my name in this, but I want my church's name in this. Without those things, people who are so crazy about Jesus, so fully in love with Jesus, so undivided in their heart, so selfless in their service, so rooted in the gospel, I feel like that's the vision that I have for this church. And I feel like we have a fighting chance. I feel like the Holy Spirit is giving us that grace right now. And this is a season for us to turn. This is a season for us to hit the brakes if we need to. Downsize if we need to. Move if we need to. Just God, get us to where we need to be. Position our hearts where we need to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first and foremost for the love that you've shown to your people. There's so many different times, God, when we turned away. There's so many different times when we walked away. And yet your mercy and your grace still holds us fast. You're still giving us a chance to return to you. You're still giving us the grace to come together as a family and begin to seek you afresh. You've been so gracious to us, God. We don't have it all together. There's so many things that are still up in the air. We know we will make a lot of mistakes along the way. But through it all, we are so glad that you haven't given up on us. We're so glad that your love covers over a multitude of sins. We're so glad that no sin, no, no death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nothing in the past, present, or future can separate us from the love of Christ. And we thank you, Father, for this season where you're calling our church to you once again. I pray, God, that if there's any of us here in this room who have yet to experience firsthand that relentless pursuit of God, the God who will stop at nothing, the God who will hold back nothing, the God who has put it all on the line to redeem us and restore us. If there's any of us in this room who haven't experienced that, who haven't felt that, who haven't heard your voice, if there's people here who are going through a dry season and it's been a while since they've heard your voice. I pray, God, that in your mercy and in your grace, you'd speak once again. That you remind us, God, of your love. You remind us that you're God, Emmanuel, the God who is with us. We thank you, Father, that you are fully in control, that you love this church 
and you love us. And we pray, God, that moving forward as a church, we be a people that do a lot of things well, but more than anything else, people who would prioritize the posture of our hearts before you, would make the first things first, would rearrange whatever we need to rearrange in order for our hearts to be right before you. We thank you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.